Previously on Storyological. <laughs> Coming at you from NPR Studios in downtown London, California. The city you didn't even know existed until that one time someone told you it existed, which was this time that is right now. Just go and get a cup of tea while you finish. Five, six, seven, eight. Do 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 boo. Boo. This is Storyological, a podcast about amazing stories that we kind of like. I'm Chris Camerud, and I'm E.G. Kosh. <laughs> My pick for this week is Starver by Daisy Johnson, which came out in her collection Fen last year in the UK, and is coming up in the US from Grey Wolf Press. It is a story about Katie and her sister, and these sisters live in the Fens. And in fact, the whole story is really deeply situated in the heavy, wet earth of the Fens, which for those who don't know about UK geography is the area uh, that sticks out in a little bulge in the east of England, so kind of around East Anglia area. This like a story we spoke about last week is a story that tells you what it is directly and upfront. And in the case of this story, it chooses to do it through um, a piece of possibly fantastical, possibly real history about how the eels starved themselves when the fens were drained. Because the fenland, much like uh, a lot of Holland, was underwater. Much like Florida. Oh, okay. But they were drained yes. um, by the people who wanted to farm there mm -hmm. i guess in the same kind of time that the part of the land in holland was drained and the story starts with a, a few paragraphs about the eels that were brought to feed the men who were working on the drainage and how these eels refused to eat after they'd been taken out of their native wetland and how they starved themselves and how there were too many eels and not enough men and yet the eels were so skinny and shrunken that there wasn't much eating on them anyway. And just in this few paragraphs, it sets you up for what's going to happen with Katie and her sister. Yeah, the, the story reminded me of, of two things. One, a book within a book. There's a book I read recently by, I believe her name is Jane Allison, uh, and her book was called Nine Island. And in the book, she is studying, well, she's rewriting the stories of Metamorphosis. Having never read Ovid's Metamorphosis, I'm already a huge fan because it seems to have influenced almost everything that I love in the world, okay. uh, including Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Because Buffy, much like this story, trafficked in the idea that the elements of the natural world, the elements of our emotions, the elements of the society around us can render change upon us or we can change in response to it. And so there was an episode of Buffy where a girl who felt ignored ultimately turned invisible. Mm -hmm. And that seemed part and parcel of this story a bit too. What was being done unto the land and the land's reaction to itself. Mm. In a way or not, it depends on how much you want to read into it. It could just happen to be that there was a story where the eels were starving and then this girl also turned into an eel and they're totally unrelated. <laughs> well, um, I was thinking like by the by the rule of how these things are placed right next to each other, that's not how the author sees it. Probably not. That There is a famous... Mm, avenue of cinematic art where when montage was kind of new people were enjoying the the arbitrariness of it and would make artistic statements by putting random things together and saying look you've made up a narrative when there is none and then the other people are like look dummy you put them in together to make a point you've made <laughs> yeah. a narrative out of it it's like oops literally the point of storytelling is to put things next to each other so that we construct a narrative 
right, about right, yeah, yeah. And part of the yeah, part of the point and trick of storytelling is to try and to make those things clear enough for us to see, mm. but not make the connection so clear that there's nothing for us to do. And right, in fact, yeah, nothing left to interpret. This story, both in a way that frustrated me and yet ultimately served, I think, its purpose, uh, felt starved. Mm. Very different from the story we talked about earlier, Sabbath Wine, where I talked about those characters having room to breathe and there being moments of in-betweenness where time would just linger and the characters would exist and take a breath and swing around a pole. Those moments don't exist as much in this story. The yeah, it's most very lean. It's entirely lean. It's entirely eel starving. My sister is starving herself. She's changing. The, the, you know, there's no life to the parents, really. There's no life to the relationship between the sisters and, and their parents, mm-hmm. except in so much as that relationship is affected and drives the, the transformation of the sister. Mm. And so it both frustrated me because... I felt like the people, it felt like the, there wasn't enough there to hold on to. They just slipped away. They, they melted, you know, into the landscape of, of the story. And yet the essential part of being a good critic or reader is to understand my frustration and understand also how maybe the thing that frustrates me, the author did on purpose because it serves the purpose of the story and in mm-hmm. fact makes it what it is makes it powerful makes me care about it in a way i might not care if she had written it yeah. if she had written it in a different way we're so suffused in um susie's description and relationship of her sister that there really is no space for anything else in fact the moment when katie the girl who is starving herself has this turning point for when she goes from simply to be appearing to starve herself to actually taking on eel-like characteristics and that is when she disappears into a bedroom with a boy presumably to have sex at a party one night and like the boy that she has sex with doesn't even get a name he's just uh, harris's brother and that is kind of indicative of how lightly sketched everybody else around these two girls is Right, we're both younger siblings, and I don't know if you experienced the same thing, but when I was a kid, I hero-worshipped my brother. He was older, he knew everything, he did everything. I wanted to be like him, I wanted to hang out with him. I saw the world through his eyes, and what he thought was cool, I immediately adopted as my viewpoint. And so seeing a somewhat similar desperation in the relationship between these two girls really echoed with me so deeply and her Susie's desire to save her sister but also because just to accept that this awful thing that her sister is doing to herself is okay because she loves and respects her sister and wants to believe that everything she does is inherently the right thing I think to me part of where I found power in the story was in as you say her acceptance that maybe as the younger sister, she's more willing to see what's happening with her older sister and accept it and want to help her. And while you're right, that could be problematic in that if the sister's doing something horrible, she'll be, yeah, go for (laughs) it. Nail yourself to that cross, you lady. Go, yeah. Um, I think for me, you know, as I said, the things that frustrate you can sometimes point you to what the story's actually doing that's powerful the, the scene you describe 
where Katie goes off into that room to have sex and where the the younger sister Suze. You uh, only get her name one time. Yeah. Um where one name Suze. Uh where Suze you know, is present but distant from that act and yet is there to carry her sister home. Mm. And as I said, in her being the only person willing to accept the changes happening to her sister is something both really happening. Right, just to acknowledge them even. Yeah, and something to be addressed. So, you know, so she's the one that takes her sister out of the hospital and takes her to somewhere where she can go and be free. To me, speaks to the limitation of my frustration. So, you know, the first time I read it where it feels like the story is starved of life or relationships. In fact, Daisy is quite capable of rendering life and that relationship through this very narrow lens so that you can feel both the relationship between the sisters and ultimately for me interpret the the parents and and the world and its refusal to see and acknowledge or affirm the change happening with the daughter in a way that reminded me of Eating Animals by Jonathan Safran Foer, that there's there's a gut reaction to when people change their eating habits because food is mm-hmm. wrapped up in culture and, and what binds a society together. And when somebody changes their eating habits, they can feel like a betrayal. And that just existed in this little story as a knot for me as well that was pleasant in reading it to mm-hmm. untangle. Yeah, and that, that relates to the idea that this girl katie she yearns to be other than she is right in this case she yearns for the water to be able to breathe with her gills rather than her lungs but the idea of being a teenage girl and wanting desperately to be other than who i am or what i am is so deeply familiar to me from from my experience and the experience of you know my peers at the time and the people i know who are teenagers now like it's it's so deep in the essence of the horror of teenagerhood. Mm-hmm. Um, you're, you're, a, you're a pupa. You're a caterpillar in a cocoon. Yeah. You're need to break free. You're, you're, not, you're neither one thing nor another. I, I guess there was one thing else that I wanted to say, which is there was one more thing I really wanted from this story, and that was to get a sense of how Katie's world had been drained. So we see at the beginning the eels starving themselves because their land had been drained, and then we see Katie starving herself, but we never get any sense of of why, really, or what it is that has persuaded her. Is it is it a long build-up of her identity? Is it some specific instance? Yeah, I, w- I would argue from my imagined story point of view, mm. two things. One, I don't think there's any explicit connection between the eels not eating and the drainage. I think those two things just exist side by side, don't they? Um, I took them to be correlative, causative. Right, right. Well, yes, yes, but that doesn't mean it's ex- explicit. Like, okay, it makes yes. sense to connect them, but there's, yes. there's nothing yes. in the story that says... More importantly, the second point, I think, well, the lack of that is about the um, the author's either decision or feeling that it doesn't matter why this person has chosen to change. Mm-hmm. What matters is that do you as a reader or do you as a character accept without question that this yeah. change is happening and that maybe it's okay. It's not something to fight. It's not something that is necessarily horrible just because it is different than what you expected Mm. yeah and and i i went back and forth on the idea of wanting to know why in many ways i think if she tried to explain it 
it would only ever be insufficient. In yeah. fact, it's far more powerful to just accept that, hey, there are times in life where we choose to change, where we choose to separate ourselves from the people we were before and the people we were with before. And this is one of those times. My pick this week is an old favorite of mine by a writer named Adam Johnson, the Pulitzer Prize winning author of Orphan Master's Son, uh, which was a great book about a North Korean man and his hijinks. <laughs> this was my first exposure to Adam Johnson. So is it typical of his work, would you say? Um, yes, I would say it is fairly indicative, though as many great writers, the the scope, the, the map on which he, he draws his stories has gotten bigger and bigger. So whereas this story, Trauma Plate, is firmly rooted in a kind of post-apocalypse Americana. Mm-hmm. Other stories like Orphan Master Son have, have gone out into the world, engaged, you know, it's taken his voice uh, right. across wider and wider galaxies of existence. So yeah, Trauma Plate was uh, published in 2002 in Barcelona Review, and it was also collected in his book Emporium, which uh, is right there in the first line of the story, which is, the Body Armor Emporium opened down the street a few months back, and I tell you, it's killing mom-and-pop bulletproof vest rental shops like ours. <laughs> that is a tough sentence. I had to reread it a few times because mom-and-pop is not a phrase that we really have in the UK. Oh, okay. Well, it's... I mean, I get it. I understand it now, but it's not. it was not immediate to me. And sure. So I, but it, what it did do is take me right into the voice of the story. Like, once I yeah. got it, I was like, okay, now I'm here for it trauma plates as that first sentence tells you is about a mom and pop bulletproof vest rental shop uh no well it's about the family that runs that shop about the father and mother and daughter and it exists in a time that is somewhere post-apocalypse but it all kind of just is still okay kind of but it's a world where you know if you're attending church or maybe flying Delta, you just got to be a little more concerned about bullets, a little more concerned that things aren't as safe as they used to be. And the setting for this story is an abandoned strip mall, this idea, particularly from, I guess, the early 2000s of the of the crowds that used to go to malls, the crowds that made up the dawn of the dead having vanished. You know, that particular nightmare didn't really come to pass. People stopped going to malls. And so in this desolate landscape, there's this family. And the story that Adam tells here is a story of the father and the mother and the daughter. It, each character gets their own section of the story. Right, and three, each, three viewpoints, one trauma plate. Exactly, yeah. It is, it is a story of three parts, three different points of view, and three different perspectives. Because the, the first section is from the father's first-person point of view, and the second section is the mother's third-person point of view, and the last section is the teenage daughter in the second person. Ah, oh, that was so beautiful, the way that her, her section transitioned into that, you know, you are doing this, you are doing that. And suddenly, what had been kind of a voyeuristic experience suddenly yanks you in by the necktie and you're like oh here i am i am right inside this this picture of suburban depression and the story for me is is goofy and alive and it's sexy and it's sad and each of its three parts centers you know on questions of of really what is the cost of safety and what is the price of of living 
really. What, uh, are we, what are we willing to sacrifice in yeah, order to it, live? Right. What are we willing to sacrifice in order to live? And what are we sacrificing when we choose not to live? Mm-hmm. I know the, the father section is very much about the dangers that exist in the world and how can I protect? And he sees his wife as very nostalgic. And she is very nostalgic. And in her section, you get her point of view, which has a bit of nostalgia. She remembers the way things used to be. But she's much more concerned about her husband giving driving lessons to their daughter in an empty parking lot where at almost every turn he's yelling at her, oh, you hit this car here. Oh, you ran off the road here <laughs> in an empty parking lot. Right. It's just <laughs> constructing this imaginary universe. And it's so beautiful because... They are living in this imaginary universe where they keep pretending to each other that there is still some future in what they're doing, even though their business is failing and no one comes by to rent a vest. Right, right. The body armor aquarium is booming. And yeah. in the in the wife in the in the mother's section, I want to say mother, because to me it all it all circles around back it's to the It's all about the daughter, the daughter yeah. Yeah. Um and, you know, we'll get back to that. But I just, the mom, Jane, you know, there, there's a betrayal in her section where she goes to the Body Armor Emporium. She's she's just embracing the future, but isn't ready to commit to it. And in the daughter section, um, Ruthie, we get her her attempts, you know, to, to deal with this, this mm. struggle of, of safety. So she's wearing this vest all day at school to be safe. And she's got this friend... Who, who is the son of the owner of the shop next door, which is this pizza shop. And and her section propels us toward a moment of connection between them mm-hmm. that explodes everything in the story and, and its final line. I, I love her experience of this world in which they live because the parents' beliefs and experience have led them to not just think that we live in a dangerous world and we should all be wearing vests but that they force their daughter to wear her vest all the time so she is among the only children at school who constantly wears a bulletproof vest initially she resented it and it was a signal of how she was trapped and restrained but gradually she comes to love it and she won't take it off and then the use of it experiencing actually being shot becomes this moment of her kind of transformation at the end or at least we assume it is because we don't actually see it but that's her culmination of her achieving this independence from her parents is like right no longer will I just wear this as a safety measure but actually I am going to choose that this vest will protect me it will save my life and I will experience what it means to live on the other side of that safety yeah let's just read that last paragraph It goes like this. Hector has his father's gun, you your mother's, and you will ask the boy you love to break the plate guarding your heart. Hector has a Monte Carlo, and you've seen the movie Bullet enough times in your dad's shop that there's a California roadmap in your head as clear as the grooves around Steve McQueen's eyes, deep as the veins in Hector's arms. But it is not enough. The line must be crossed. He's ten feet from you, a parking space away. You hand him your mother's silver little number. It will knock you down. You know there will be that smell. But soon there will be no more vests, no more fears, only Hector's fingers on the bruise he's made on your sternum, and the line will be crossed, the event set in motion at the highest of speeds. And while that is beautiful, what I was thinking about as I, as I revisited this story is kind of the definition of inspired, which can seem magical and loosey-goosey when you say things like that, like, oh, this story is inspired, and 
you know, I love spirits. They're real to me. Um, and to me, one of the ways that you can, you can look at it, if you don't want to believe in spirit or believe, is just the feeling of prophecy, the feeling that everything was foretold, the feeling that everything is connected, that sense that sometimes we have just in our life where everything smashes together. And it's what, it's what for me is the high of both writing and reading short stories is a line like this at the end of the story where mm. everything both figuratively crashes together and right. literally... It's like it's like a black hole just opens up and sucks the whole story into it. Exactly. And it's interesting you would point out black holes because what I wanted to bring bring our attention to um, <laughs> did you know uh is those lines the line will be crossed the events set in motion are right, speaking back to an aspect of uh ruthie's story where she's talking about god, god bless the goofiness of adam johnson her physics teacher is also her swim team teacher <laughs> right? and he often uses the same metaphors in both examples and so in, in describing a moment in in swimming he he says that there's a moment when you're swimming there is a speed beyond which you can no longer safely swim without changing your form. The point at which you must let yourself be taken by your own current. Safety is your enemy, he likes to say. And it comes up again in physics class. He talks about the event horizon. And as Ruthie says, and uh, as you pointed out, her very direct, almost throat-grabbing style. She describes that moment in physics class. She says, let's say that Pluto is gone. That little planet swings wide one day and never comes back. And she describes how... I just I just suddenly realized that she's the little planet. Yeah, yeah, exactly. She's the little planet that escapes the... That tries, is, is yeah. searching... Escape velocity. To me, is a way to understand what it is to be inspired or to try to get your stories in an inspired shape is that that last line comes from these conversations. Great. There's that reference. There's that callback. Mm. But what feels more magical is the very structure, the very substance of the story where you have these three perspectives, where you're, in a sense, whiplashing from one point of view to another, and each switch from point of view moves you forward in time. Mm -hmm. So it creates a perfect kind of orbiting spiral shape where you are ultimately never back where you were. You're always moving forward, but in moving forward, you're spinning around. And that is also described in the story, is that orbit. And the feeling I get at the end of the story is that it it achieves itself. It achieves escape velocity. Um, It made me think of another story or set of stories that we have enjoyed. Um, It made me think a lot of Bob's Burgers and Mm, how it has the same kind of family setting, the Mm -hmm. same existential despair and hope without reason um uh, <laughs> i don't know if that's the right way of thinking of describing it and the same kind of goofy comedy as well and and of course bob's burgers is a sitcom a cartoon sitcom where people don't ever really age the kids as mm. far as i know i haven't seen the later seasons but as far as i know they they do not get older and so in that way it is very different because you never get a sense of passing time unless they do flashbacks or flash forwards. Whereas this one, as you said, it kind of whiplashes you forward, throws you forward with every change of uh, viewpoint. And it makes it in many ways much more satisfying, much less likely to be a a long running sitcom on TV. (laughs) But, you know, that's why I love, I love how different stories have different forms that work Mm -hmm. in different mediums. So like the amount of my love for the stories, it, it is one of those stories that when I read it, I immediately just want to grab people and not ask them to read it. I just want to randomly start reading to them from the story. 
it might be one of my favorite short stories ever written. What? What? And that is different from saying it might be one of the best short stories. Correct. It possesses a molecular structure, not dissimilar to Fight Club, though a bit、mm. sweeter. That feels as though I have just imbibed literary rocket fuel. <laughs> Whereas for me, it's a story I enjoyed and I very much admire it, but it doesn't connect with me in the same way.、Mm. I feel. Distant from it, and I don't know if it's a cultural distance or a genre distance. I just—I don't know. It's an interesting question. Are, are there stories you love that are? That's ridiculous. Saying it's a genre distance, I love literary stories and genre stories, and well, but this is a particular genre of of deep, goofy, dark earnestness.、Mm-hmm. You know, this is melodrama. This is basically a musical written down in the form of a short story. These people are are singing their emotions nonstop. The subtlety only exists in the in the craft with which he's put it together. The story itself, the surface of it, is in no way subtle, which makes、mm. me think about a difference in genre and a difference in culture. That, in a way, this follows a certain. Exuberant American strain of literature, like the way Nabokov, when he immigrated to the U.S. and wrote, and the way that Roth writes, or the way that maybe it's just a difference in gender. Oh yeah, I was going to bring that up because part of me wondered, reading the story, if his his writing about post-apocalyptic and and this and this goofy dark place and and the question of how safety is your enemy. Comes from a very different reality than the reality we talked about in Sabbath Wine, where、mm-hmm. those families feel fundamentally unsafe. The world is actually unsafe.、Mm-hmm. Safety is their friend because it means not getting lynched. Where in this story, safety is your enemy because it means not connecting with life or other people. Right, and then I wonder if it's more male. Okay. Massive gender stereotype coming up to think of it like that because the sad truth for women in our societies is that safety is generally not our expectation.、Right. We walk around every day worried for our own safety. Yeah, I think I think so, and I think you're right to question the stereotype of male because it is not so much a maleness, though. I well, I don't think it's so much a maleness, though that might be predominant. But like I was saying about like an African American family or Jewish family, it has to、right. do about. Where you exist in the societal、okay. spectrum. So, so if、like、you are a, a black man, you might not have you might have a, an idea of safety that you, as a white woman, the author slash protagonist in the Venus Effect, does not have an experience of safety、right. in his and, life, and never and never has done. Yeah, and I think it's really good we're having this conversation. It, it touches on those things where I think it is both a universal and not. Like to me, it is hard to imagine. That is not universal. That sometimes we protect ourselves from things that ultimately are the things that are made up of life. This idea、mm-hmm. that the way we approach death, the way we, the way we engage with death, is the way we engage with life. So if we're afraid, this idea that everything we want is on the other side of fear. But as a as a writer and as a as a human, just because something is universal, doesn't mean it actually exists in the same way for everyone. Yeah. Yeah, and I think there's a very strong sense in this story that safety was a thing that existed once for this guy, but now no longer exists. And part of the story is about lamenting the loss. Yeah. And when you don't have the same racial and gender privileges as that guy, you live in a world without that safety, but you don't lament its loss in the same way because you 
have never had it. I think that that is that is true. Yeah, you don't lament it in the same way. But what is what is fascinating to me is two things. One is that even though we're talking about this, like maybe he exists, that the the spirit of the story exists in a privileged place. We we have no real way of knowing what you know that this particular person or the spirit of the story's life is. But also, we've read stories that touch on the same ideas from various genres like the story we read about the future looks good is about how the future lives in the past and the mm-hmm. scars pass on and what you're describing is is the dad bills you know he lost the sense of safety he's passed that scar all the way you know into yeah. his daughter's <laughs> life and she's struggling literally with the weight of the past around her shoulders and holding on to it as a safety measure in the same way that in sabbath wine those two parents have both experienced a loss of safety Thanks for listening, readers. It is almost certain, unless we've fallen through a black hole into a special netherworld of magical in-between dustness, that we did not manage to discuss all of the stories that exist. Nor did we say all of the things about these stories. Uh, There's too much. Yeah. Um, So if you have any ideas of other stories we should talk about or other things we should have said about these stories but failed to say... You can let us know on Twitter. We are at Storylogical. Which is story. Like the word. Oh. Like the letter. And logical. Like Aristotle. And you can follow her on Twitter at E.G. Kosh. And you can follow him on Twitter at Kuvals. And if for whatever reason you're on Facebook and you feel like dropping by our page and following us or liking us or seeing what little doodles and pictures we've put up... We are facebook.com slash storylogical. And of course, for show notes, links, gifts of uh, inappropriate and appropriate nature uh, for a chance to listen to past episodes or subscribe to this podcast, you can always find us at our home on the web. Storylogical.com. Thanks for listening. Happy reading. Stories, man, is how we understand the world. So I hope you appreciate this podcast where we explain the world to you. (laughs) Fixed it.